Hey, good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. What a privilege it is to be here, to be thinking about your word, to be thinking about you, to be thinking about something greater than our lives. Father, you are greater than our lives, but because you are, you care about us and there's a reciprocity. Lord, it's unbelievable in your grace towards us. Father, I pray this morning that you would be with us. Lord, there may be people here or on live stream that don't even know if you exist, wonder about your character, about who you are and about what you say or think about them. And so, Father, I pray that you'd be with them. Let them go on a journey with you this morning through your word. Only you can do that through your Holy Spirit. So we invite the Holy Spirit here this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. I, you know, where are you? How come you people aren't gone? Why are you still here? Isn't it great? Isn't it great? So it's uh, what a what a what a privilege to be with you. We, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, we've been doing this thing that we're not calling a series for a bunch of weeks, and uh, we're looking at the character of David, King David, and through the lens of David and Saul. But now Saul's already out of the narrative. Through the lens of David, we are learning things about our own journey right here in the 21st century. We're learning about the character of God. We're learning about mistakes and we're learning about the grace of God and we're learning about we're learning about a man with incredible passion. One of the things we've been looking at is just the passion with which he lived life as it related to God. In fact, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, even in light of, as we've looked at the last several weeks, some calamitous uh, decisions that he's made and will continue to make throughout his life. It's actually a very, it's, it's one of those lives that you go back and read in scripture and it flies in the face of this moralistic, kind of holier-than-thou religious attitude that doesn't allow for, now look, are we against righteousness? Absolutely not. We want to become more like the creator. But religion sometimes, and some of you may even have a view of religion that is something that stands apart from the normal guy. And so those are, it's the same way during the time of Jesus, in fact. The Pharisees were the religious ones, and Jesus' greatest hostility was against those that perceived no need for God. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I had invited him to the church at the red door, and they said, well, if I walked in that door, the whole thing, the lightning would hit that place. And I said, let me tell you something. It was, a, it was a young lady that I know. I said, let me tell you something. The ground at the foot of the cross is very level. None of us surpass another. We're all at the very much the same place. So you'd be very welcome, and you'd fit right in at Church at the Red Door. So uh, let's continue. What we finished with last week, we kind of referred to it as the seeds of destruction. As great as it was, as unbelievable as David was and the life and now he's being anointed king of in Hebron at least for the two northern tribes of the southern tribe excuse me and now he's really beginning to take his place he had in fact been anointed some oh we roughly 15 years prior to that he'd have been anointed king but it took a long time and he displayed some fear he displayed some courage he displayed all kinds. He was all over the map. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt just all over the map sometimes? Where you're like, you know, if anybody knew, they wouldn't let me in the doors of Church at the Red Door. If they knew what was going through my head this week. I mean, I claimed to call myself a Christian and the thoughts that I was having, the ways I reacted to 
my wife or the what you know that that shady deal I was doing all of a sudden I got caught up and like what are you doing how, how can have you ever felt that way well David we see incredible ups and downs in his life and to be honest with you it gives me courage to go on and to get back up off the ground when I see somebody like David because it continuously said, and that's what we saw last week in Acts chapter 13, even a thousand years later, they were still extolling David for being a man after God's own heart who would do all of his will. Now that boggles my mind. All of his will? What are you talking about? I mean, he made so many tragic mistakes. If you're here this morning, let me just tell you something. Many of us, I would say most of us, if not all of us, have to look back at our lives and go, boy, I can really itemize some tragic mistakes that I made. And then I came to religion and thought, well, you know, I've obviously failed the test. And so you live like hell for the rest of your life because you never really believe that you can ever be right with this God because of whatever. And now you fill in the blank. Let me tell you something. The story of David gives us courage to get back up out of the ditch. Last week we saw, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17. We saw Moses on Mount Nebo and there he was and he was beginning to articulate after about 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and he had encouraged them. No, he had admonished them. Let me tell you something. Whatever you do, don't let your king multiply for himself wives or gold or silver. Don't let that happen. And what did David do? He, he's like at the high point. I mean, he's just finally gotten through all these stages and 20 sons that we know of and one daughter, really, David, come on, at least eight wives that we know of, plus all the concubines. Now, like I said, some of you women may tune out at that point and go, I'm, I'm not into David anymore. I was, I was enjoying the ride until I heard of that kind of nonsense, you know, hashtag me too. You know, really? I mean, what is going on with all this, David? I mean, this is terrible. And we're going we're gonna to set you up as being a man after God's own heart? Well, listen to what Charles Swindoll, I listened to him elaborate on this. He said, David, once he solidified his rule in Jerusalem, will have extraordinary power. Now listen to, you want to talk about being on the height? He would expand the territorial boundaries of Israel from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. David unified the nation under Jehovah God. He created a national interest in spiritual things, and he did. He was not a priest. He was a king, but he lifted up the role of the priesthood so that Judaism could operate open and freely in the land. He destroyed the idol altars. I say again, David was a remarkable man. He was a remark. He was a brilliant organizer, a brilliant manager, a brilliant planner. He was also a man of brilliant battlefield savvy who stayed on the leading edge of military defense. He was. He was all of those things, and he was so passionate for God, and yet he fell. And that's what I want to look at, to, uh, look at a little bit this morning. First of all, what does sin do to you? I'm going to ask the question, what does sin do to you? And first of all, what is sin? So a lot of people, look, sin is missing the mark for what God has for you. Sin is not just the act of commission. It's also the act of omission. You're sinning and missing the mark for your life if you're not a person of worship, if you're not a person who, who 
so like David has a passion for the living God. You, you will struggle your entire life if you do not believe that there is a way back. And that is the unbelievable news of the gospel. But what does sin in the meantime do to you? And what does sin do to you even once you've come to Jesus and you've been sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit? What impact does sin have on your life? That's what I'm going to ask you this morning. Well, I'm telling you right now, it steals your joy. Now, you can be saved, you can be right with God, and you can be missing the mark dramatically in an area, and it will violate your joy covenant that you have with God. I mean, you just can't. Let me tell you something. Once you have been... have stood before a crowd and said, I am a Jesus person. And then you try to simultaneously live in continuous practicing sin. Now, look, all of us miss the mark daily. I do. And that's one of the reasons I think the Apostle Paul said, I pray daily. A lot of that was, Father, forgive me. That was a horrible. How did I react that way? Why am I so afraid right now? Just a consistent, continuous dialogue with the creator of the universe. But it steals your joy. Once you stand up in front of a crowd, once you even before two or three people and say, I am a Jesus person, once you put a fish on the back of your car <laughs> and and then you try to and then you try to live in a lifestyle of sin, what happens? You're miserable. You weren't miserable. You were miserable in some ways. But you could live apart from Christ and you could live in your apathy and your sin and your indiscretions. And uh, you didn't really have that continuous conscience issue. But now your conscience who was dead is made alive with the Holy Spirit. You're never going to be happy. Why don't you just go ahead and get on with the righteous program? Right? Why don't you just go ahead and say, I'm going to quit in that area. I'm not going to go down that road anymore. I'm tired of taking another trip around the wilderness, which is what they did for 40 years. It's going to rob you of your joy. There's no, you have no chance as a Jesus person. You have no chance. Go ahead and make that decision today. There might even be something right now you say, I know this is, the Lord has been dealing with me for many years on this, and I have, okay, Lord, today is the day. I'm just going to go ahead and make my volitional decision, I know you're going to empower me. I know you're going to be the one that's both giving me the intention. It's you that convicts me even now as I'm sitting here in my chair. Lord, I'm done with this. I, it's over. I'm not going to treat my husband in that way anymore. And all the husbands said. Yeah, good. So, look, I, I, I'm done in that area. I played a little golf yesterday and... Uh, I didn't play for a couple of years when we planted the church, and now I'm, uh, I'm out there. I don't know if you could call what I do anymore playing much anymore, but we played yesterday, and it was a little bit warm, and uh, I did find myself, the old flesh began to emerge, especially uh, as I hit a couple of wayward shots. And uh, I did pretty well about, I was about 95%. I batted about 95%. And the whole day, the word was just filling my mind at least you, you could see that there was a pursuit of being pleasant to play with righteousness <laughs> at least there was a pursuit of it it was constantly flowing through my mind in the old days it never occurred to me that it you know you'd it'd be nice to be pleasant to play with it never occurred to me prior to jesus 
but now it does. And I don't win every battle, and I had a lot of battles yesterday, but I don't win every battle, but I'll tell you, it was the word was constantly flowing through my mind. And there was relative joy at the end of the round. <laughs> there was. Guys I played with, uh, they weren't so joyful. Actually, they were because they took some of my money. I will repent for gambling later after the, after the <laughs> service. Second thing it does is it tends to make your life so unfruitful. You know, uh, the longer you walk with Jesus, look, when you first come to the cross, what you really want is you just want to make sure that you're right with God, that if there is an eternal realm that you'd like to be in heaven rather than hell, and that is a strong motivator. You want to be in the presence of God, not outside the presence of God, for the rest of your life. And, and so there's, a, there's an overwhelming uh, sense of gratitude, and it's kind of a first love thing. But if you don't, if you don't become discipled, if you don't learn the word, if you don't get part of, become, for instance, at the, here at the church, we have, through Pastor Paul and others, these rooted groups. You need to get rooted in your faith. You've got you've to know the basics, and then you've got to keep moving on. You've got you've to really dig deep to understand what the Scripture says, uh, rather than say, well, this is kind of what I believe. Based on what? Mike, your experience? I don't care if you've lived a thousand years. You don't have the experience. You could live a million years, and you would never have the experience that Scripture can give you through your discipleship process. I mean, do you really want to base your future just on kind of your experience and your perception and your hybrid model of whatever it is that you have come to believe? Or do you want to say, no, I'm going to stand firm on this. I'm going to buy into something because everybody does. You know, some of you narrow Christians, everybody buys into something. You're living your, the narrative of your life out of some belief. And usually they're fairly unexamined for most folks. They just are. And so finally I came to a place and I said, look, I want to be, I want to be discipled because and part of, as I became discipled, I said, look, this is, talks a lot about stewardship and fruitfulness. And I want to be fruitful. I want people to be impacted by my life. And so should you. You want people to be impacted by your life. You want to stand before the Lord one day and have other people say, this person, you cannot believe how she invested in my life. I'm different because of, and then they, and they were to utter your name. The judgment seat of Christ. How would that make you feel then? Work towards it now. But missing the mark now will dramatically compromise the stewardship of your life it just will and you know intuitively you know that and we're going to talk about that in a minute but this is cognitive dissonance this is something that's in your head if you're in sin and you're practicing sin like i said there's a difference the bible makes a qualitative difference in someone who is practicing sin and someone who is attempting pursuing righteousness and sins and then repents on an ongoing basis as a lifestyle. We talked about that early on in the planting of the church. We talked about a lifestyle of repentance. There's a big difference in a settled disposition and just saying, it's okay, I've just begun to accept this behavior in my life. It's just the way I am. No, we don't have that right anymore to say it's just the way I am. It's the way I was raised. It's just, it's just how I am. It's just my personality is rough in that area. No, you don't have that right anymore as a follower of Jesus. And if you don't move towards Christ's likeness, your fruit, the fruitfulness of your life will be dramatically compromised, which you will not see much now. 
The IRS will not call you and ask you in for an audit. The heavenly IRS. You know, sometimes just having that, knowing that, there's a sense in which it would almost be good if we had a place where we could go, say, at various stages in our life and go in and sit down with the creator of the universe or one of his representatives and go through an audit of your life to see how you're doing. Kind of terrifying, huh? But how productive would that be? You know, that's one of the reasons we have community. In, in some ways, a Sunday morning is an audit if you're open to it. It is. And it is for me too. Don't think, trust me, don't think that I am here preaching at you. As I've told many of you, I'm just talking to myself up here and you get to listen in. <laughs> and I believe that with all my heart. It's like an ongoing audit. Paul said it, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, check yourself to see if you're in the faith. If in fact Christ is in you, check yourself, do an audit. You say, well, you, I can't see myself rightly. Exactly the reason for Community, an accountable community, and groups of people in your life who can give you an ongoing update. How am I doing? Have you ever asked anybody, what do you see in me? Do you see passion? Do you see for the kingdom? Do you, do you see rough edges? I mean, do you have men or women in your life that really give you a mirror picture of that? It would be wise that you have that. Why? Because you want to be fruitful. You don't want to miss the mark continuously. It's important. And lastly, and this is a terrifying aspect, and I don't want to get into, you know, do you, can you lose your salvation? Can you not lose your salvation? I, I, even in this room, a room like this, you would have on one side, you would have a, a group that would say, look, it's, it's predestined. It's called before the foundations of the earth. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. On the other, on the other hand, you'd have another view that it's, no, it's much more dependent upon, of course, it's God's power, but you make very specific decisions. And, and whether you know it or not, in a group like this, especially a place like the Coachella Valley, we have all, and I love it, that we have all kinds of different leanings in terms of theological leanings. And there's good reasons on both sides that you have those leanings. Some of you are unaware that that even exists, but there is an ongoing controversy. I absolutely believe you're sealed in the Holy Spirit. I absolutely believe that you're saved by the grace of God and that you couldn't possibly save yourself. God was pursuing you. But on the other hand, I do believe that you do make decisions. And some of those decisions of sin, practiced sin, not just sin that occurs and then you repent, a settled disposition to sin can compromise this, and it's important, it'll compromise your faith. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 3 if you have your Bibles. This is important to see. I don't want to get into the debate. Look, I believe it's both. I, 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 and you've heard, some of you have heard me say this, and it's helped a lot of people through the years. And, and I, I think of a, a continuum, a timeline continuum. And as I'm walking forward in time, I look out today, and I think I have to make decisions. I'm going to make a decision to you know, come to church at the red door. I'm, I'm going to make a decision to get in the word. I'm going to make a decision to forgive. I'm going to make a decision to, to not sin, for instance. I'm going to make all these decisions. So as I look forward, I'm kind of over in this camp. I look forward. I kind of, it's very much about my decisions. But once I've walked through the day in time, it's important that I then turn around and look with ret a, a nice retros retrospective and look back and then I say, well, 
God gave me the power to do that. God gave me the intention to read my word. God gave me the time to do it. In fact, it was all God. You say, well, you're having your cake and eating it too. It depends on what your perspective is. If you do this inversely, if you look into the future and say, it's all God, it's either, you know, it's, it becomes fatalism. In other words, you don't see yourself making very cohesive decisions that, that are important. And you look into the future, you'll become fatalistic. And even worse, if you turn around and look in the past and say, look at all the great decisions I made. I don't know, wonderful guy. I got up and prayed. I became, guess what? You become, you become a Pharisee or You'll have a bad day and you say, I don't, even go, I don't even know if God could possibly love me after that horrible day that I just had. You've got to You both are very much expounded in scriptures. God does the saving. Yes, absolutely, unequivocally. And you are sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet I read Hebrews chapter three and it grabs me with a great force to say your faith is precious. Now, how are we saved? Look, you may be here this morning. How are we saved? We're saved. You're saved by coming to church at the red door at least three times out of the month. (laughs) Now, that's my interpretation. No, that's not how you're saved. For those of you who are new to your Bible, Paul told the Ephesians, you're saved by grace. Now, that's God's unmerited favor towards you. He just loves you. Of course, you don't deserve it. Who does in here? Can anybody say they deserve it? No, not one of us. He loves us. Saved by grace through faith. And not of what you do, lest anybody go around bragging about it. It's very important to know. You're saved by grace through faith and not of your activities in life. Having said that, do the activities of your life have a, an effect on your faith? The answer to that would be an unqualified yes. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters. Just take care. Listen to this. Come on now. Listen to this. I beg you this morning, listen to this. That there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Be careful. Take care. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Still today. I'm encouraging you. I'm begging you. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've all we've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. See, now that seems like, wait a minute, that's you doing the work until the end. Uh oh. What's the work? When they ask Jesus, what is the work? To believe. That's the work. That's the work. You want to know what the work is? To believe. Can I ask you a question? Is it work to believe sometimes? Especially if you're going through something. Some of you have a bad diagnosis right now. Maybe you got it this week. Maybe a dear friend. Maybe somebody passed. You know, as we've seen just in our family's life, you know, the Parkinson's granddaughter, two, just almost three years old, killed instantly in a car accident three weeks ago. That'll challenge you. Hold fast your faith until the end. You're going to need all the help you can get in this life, in this journey called life. It says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. 
Now he's going to go back to the wilderness experience that we've looked at over and over in here. Their experience, Israel, of coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea and into the wilderness is our experience. So don't harden your hearts as when they provoke me, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, so that we, we see that they were not able to, to enter because of unbelief. Now, which is it? Is it disobedience or is it unbelief? These two Greek words, we want to dive into these just a little bit because it's important. Apatheo uh, is our word for disobedience in the Greek here, and it just means to refuse belief and obedience. It's translated disobedience, but it's actually to refuse belief. And then apostia is also the word that they use here for unbelief. And it says, this is unfaithfulness. And then you might ask, well, what is unfaithfulness? Well, it's not uh, faithfully. It's false to duty or obligation or promise. In other words, it's manifested in their actions or our actions. Do you see the interchangeability in these two things? Is it, was it belief or is it obedience? Well, what you're suggesting, if, you, if, if, it's, if one is not dependent on the other, what are you saying? You say, well, I can believe, but my actions don't have to align with my belief. And can I just tell you, that, that it's not possible. It's not possible. You are doing everything in your life right now based on what you believe. Let me say that again. You can, you can live in, in a quagmire of dissonance for a while. But you'll go insane if you try to continue to live in that place. Something gives. Something will give. So, and I've, look, I I was telling a group of men this last couple of weeks. I said, look, I have watched now for over two decades. I typically, most of my ministry in my life has has been with men. Executive level men. And typically we're at country club type places and different places like that. And we meet, it could be a group of 10, it could be a group of 50 guys. And we'll be going out for a while and everything will be good and everybody's rolling and everything's wonderful. And I know Bob came in a couple of weeks ago. He's all excited about that. And then he's there for a month, a month and a half, two months, maybe six months, maybe a year. And it's like, oh, where's Bob? I hadn't seen Bob in the last couple of weeks. Where's Bob? You don't, well, unless he moved or unless something happened. And trust me, I, I, but Almost 100% of the time, if Bob disappears, not just from that Bible study, but if he disappears off the, the followership landscape, we'll call it that, all right? If he disappears off that landscape, almost 100% of the time, something's going on in Bob's life. Bob had dissonance from the way he acted, from the way he lived his life, and from what we were talking about and aspiring to as an aspiring community. Something had to give. And this is just an outgrowth of that. It very rarely is someone living righteously, loving God, spending time in the word, loving the kingdom, living in that direction. And then all of a sudden they go, you know what? I'm not into this anymore. And there's not some kind of dissonance. There's some kind of desire deep in their soul. And they they want to live a different kind of lifestyle. They don't want to practice that. And they felt too much dissonance to be able to do that. 
So something had to give. And usually it's an interpretation of the word. I don't like organized religion anymore. I have heard all of them. All of them. What really was the case is that they now were living in disobedience. And so they began to alter their beliefs. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look, one of the most precious things you will ever maintain in your life, and that's what the word calls 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what Peter says here. And Peter knew a lot about sinning, didn't he? Denying the very Savior? I mean, cutting off a guy's ear? I mean, come on, Peter. Come on, man. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God our Savior and Jesus Christ. What kind of faith? It's a precious faith. In the NIV, I believe, and the King James calls it a precious faith. This precious faith. Your faith is more precious than gold. You Look, you will carry nothing with you into the next life other than a life well lived in faith. Your stuff will be gone, but your faith will be maintained. So what is it about faith? What is it about this? We somehow just want to believe that somehow, some way, we can believe one thing and act another way. And everything will just be okay. And that dissonance in your life will never produce happiness. It'll steal your joy. It'll steal your fruitfulness. And ultimately and catastrophically, it might even steal your faith. Say, well, I've never seen that happen. Oh, I've seen it happen. I've seen guys appear to start out great. And they were really moving. And they were spending time in the Word. And they were going. And they were coming to groups. And they were doing whatever. And they were living for the kingdom, giving their money, giving whatever it is. They were just like living for God. That's such a passion for Jesus. And then some little something crept in there and began to put the screws down on them. And they had to, they had to choose, like Joshua. You know, choose you this day who you will serve. And they went the other direction. Now, back to our theological kind of presuppositions and views. I do believe that God is faithful and he will discipline us in very severe ways. And my, my belief is that he will draw you back and draw you back and draw you back even in the midst of that. But I will just say it's a cautionary tale. Why waste years of unfruitfulness and misery holding on to something that will never satisfy you in the first place? Why? Why would we do that? We're crazy people. We are crazy people. I thank God for a, an aspiring community. That's what we do here. We aspire to be like Jesus. Is that, is that, a, is that a hidden secret? Let's get that out in the open. We are an aspiring community. Everybody in here, I want us to become like Jesus. Jesus wants us to become like Jesus because he's the perfect representation of the Father. It's very important. I want you to go back and listen to this. This is William Nicholson back in 1862. Probably the only thing from 1862 you're going to hear all day. Listen to what he says about the preciousness of faith. I love this. Worldly men dote upon riches and prestige and power and pleasures and possessions. But however highly they may be prized, the Christian possesses something infinitely more valuable. He has precious faith. 
in Christ, which secures him a saving interest in the favor of God, which is life, and in his loving kindness, which is even better than life. Earthly honors, dignities, grandeur, estates, they're all but fleeting vanities and unsatisfying in their very nature. We know that. Man will soon be taken from them forever, or they may elude his grasp before his death. But that which precious faith gives to the Christian shall exist forever. That faith looks not at the things which are seen. Uh-oh, sounds like he's talking our language in the church at the red door. It's not here in the seen realm. It's temporal. But at the things which are not seen, which are eternal. He's quoting, this, he's quoting the Apostle Paul. The statesman may glory in his eloquence as the instrument of his success. The legislator may glory in his wise regulations to promote the benefit of the country. The warrior may glory in his sword, his skill and valor as the source of his mighty achievements. Maybe LeBron James hitting that game winner last night. Off the wrong leg, going the wrong direction, off the backboard. Let's see how many NBA people we have here. None. Not one NBA person here. Do we have any? Come on. One person didn't see that game? At least, thanks, brother. Blair. Two. Two. Sorry, Kelly and Blair. And, okay. And sad back back there. Okay. Good. I'm not the only one. But it was impressive. But you're going to glory and that's going to be gone. The sensualist may glory in his carnal pleasures and pursuits as the only source of, enjoy, of his enjoyment. You only live once, so the saying goes. The rich man may glory in his gold, his vast domain, his equipage of splendor, as the very fountain of his bliss. But, says the Christian, I will glory in my precious faith, for that faith is, in fact, precious. It is more precious than rubies. 1862, do, do things change? I mean, really? If you go back to the time of Jesus... Go back to the time of the Apostle Paul, about two-thirds of the New Testament. Or go back to the time of David, which is what we're looking at. Or go back, same time, Solomon, who wrote part of the, much of the wisdom literature that we have. You go all the way back in time, and people pursue the same thing in the same way with the same result over and over and over and over again. And, can, and, and the stories mount and the glory for those who pursue God, and the joy and the, the wonder that they have, and then the, the dead end of all the things that we've looked at, if they are a priority. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's, it's a blindness to the reality of what brings true and lasting joy. And it's Jesus. So let me ask you this. I, I want to do this real quick. I'm gonna, who likes a wonderful life? Do you like the movie? If you haven't seen that, Come on, one person? <laughs> Mr. Potter, George Bailey, doesn't get any better than that. And it's in black and white. Doesn't get any better than that. So do you remember this scene, The Great Temptation? I want to look this last time we have together. I want to look at the anatomy of a temptation. I mean, how do you get to where David got? How did he, how did he, how did he, he was at the top of the mountain? He had all these experiences with God. He was a man of worship and passion and all those things. How did he get from there to where we're going to see him over the next few weeks? How did that even happen? It's called temptation. Let's look at one of George Bailey's temptations. Now let's look at your side. <laughs> Young man, 27, 28, 
28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, 10 if you skimp. A child or two comes along and you won't even be able to save the 10. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir, trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture? Or do I exaggerate? Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? The point is, I want to hire you. Hire? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? But you wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? You're not talking to somebody else around here, are you? You know, th this is me. You remember me? George Bailey. George Bailey. George Bailey, whose ship has just come in. Provided he has enough brains to climb aboard. Confounded man, are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three years contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Plunner, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just, uh, I, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, yes. and in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. Oh, no, now wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now. And the answer's no, no. Doggone it. You, you sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You, you... And that goes for you, too. Yes, yes, George, good decision, buddy. Can you see that? I mean, look, that it, you're pursuing righteousness. His righteous act was the building alone, right? That was, his, that was the equivalent of what God had called him to do. Of course, you know the end of the story. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. It's the greatest life. There is no life like it. 
but it always comes with its challenges and its temptations. And it's always the same thing. Satan likes to build you up in pride and you can't trust God and the integrity of God. You can't trust his word. You can't trust any of that stuff. Does it ever change? No, the anatomy of a temptation, we'll close with this. The anatomy of temptation is simple. It's usually three primary places that Satan will hit you and try to move you into a place of dissonance in your walk with Christ. And then something has to give. Now, we're always teetering in that direction and there needs to be a place of early repentance. And and we'll talk about in weeks to come, we'll talk about what are the safeguards against temptations that God's put into our lives, not the least of which is the Holy Spirit. But there are five or six places that are absolute safeguards. If you think about this and care about this, if you think this is not a big deal, it's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Not a big deal. He comes as an angel of light. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. How does he do it? Number one, he challenges the word of God every time. I want you to go back to Genesis 3. It's the first, first temptation we have in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3. It's, by the way, it's exactly how Satan fell himself. It's exactly how Satan fell. If you read Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and other places that kind of unpack the picture of Satan through the king of Tyre and the king of uh, Babylon, you see these various places clearly not talking. It's talking about the power behind them. It's always appealing. He was beautiful and, and, and pride. Pride lifted him up and then he made the same mistakes. He began to question, God's holding out on me. Something's going on here. So first thing Satan does is question the word of God. And what did he say? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field with which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said that? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. He begins to do a little twisting, just a little twist. Did God say, and it, just enough, enough, you can have a big, beautiful glass of water. And it just takes a little bit of arsenic to poison you and wipe you out. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Has God really said that? Can't you turn that a little bit? Can't you see that values shift and that mores move? And that, that's an ancient, archaic word. And you, can you really trust God in that? In fact, did he really say it? So he can hit you in a multiplicity of ways. Number one, and I hear, I hear this all the time. So when you're out on the mission field talking to people about Jesus, you're always going to answer this primary question. Can you really trust this? I mean, man wrote this. It's come down through many different generations. You can't trust the integrity of the text. Even if Jesus did say that, he probably didn't say it in that way. He probably didn't mean that much. The only people who say that, let me tell you that this is very clear. The only people who really say that and hold to that are people who have not spent years unpacking the beautiful symmetry in something that's written over a 1500 year period of time with exacting predictive prophecies and clarity that you cannot even imagine. And one of the things that's so amazing, and I've told you this before, but I'll continue to pound the table on this, and he gave it to the Jewish people to be, to be mediators and to be custodians of it, and then as, a, as an overarching, at least the Old Testament, as an overarching thing, as a nation, not all, but as a nation, they tended to stumble over the stumbling stone or the cornerstone that the prophets had seen. So the very custodians of the text that proved that Jesus is the Messiah and this whole kingdom... The custodians were the ones who denied it. You can't have a conspiracy in that. Now, that's changing in our day, and many Jewish people are coming to a belief in Jesus. 
Has God said it? You know what your flesh is going to do? It's going to war. It's always going to be scouring the landscape of something your flesh wants to do and try to make it okay by using and twisting the text. Has God really said that? Well, think about it like this. I get it all the time, and I think that's one of the pastoral duties that all of us have as pastors is sitting down with people who maybe even be taking the text and twisting it just enough to support an unrighteous decision. I see it all the time. I see it all the time. Has God really said that? Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hid in my heart, King James, that I might not sin against you. Look, you've got to take the word and you've got to put it down in your very center, your soul. You have to own it. Don't say, well, I heard that somewhere. I know a little bit about that. That's why we are absolute. Here at Church of the Red Door, we, we applaud. We applaud church scholarship on all of our parts. You've got to get into the word. You cannot just have, you know, 40, 45 minutes. Some of you don't laugh on Sunday morning. You know, you've got to have more than that. You've got to be in it daily. You've got to own it. Uh, your word, I've, NASB says, I've treasured in my heart. In other words, it's so important that I eat this and I, because it's going to begin to dispel the way I think about things. We talked about that as well, Isaiah 55. Your ways are just not my ways. And the way you think about things are not the way I think about things. So if you want to get on the same page, spend time in the word. We're all, we will always be a content-driven church here. You hear us over and over. This may not be your bag. Church of the Red Door may not be your bag. I mean, we're going to be a word-driven church. Why? Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I don't know. I don't know much about I'd have to get Chris Herman up here with his, all his understanding of trees and bushes and plants and all that kind of thing. All I can tell you, it looks like to me seeds are everywhere now. The pollen and seeds and all this stuff going crazy because you can't park your car anywhere near anything right now it comes away looking like a yellow vw bug regardless of what it is things falling off trees see i walk through the deal and there's seeds everywhere and you wonder how many and i'm, I'm, I'm it always boggles my mind how many of these seeds make it to good ground where they can get that's not hard where somehow they can penetrate so there's enough water something where the seeds actually create another tree or a plant or something i don't know how all that works but I wonder what the percentages are because it feels like all of them are on my car. And, and, you know, and then you can't get them all off. And so anyway, I, I don't know how that works. Receive the word implanted. It will save your soul. That's your mind, will, and emotions, your volitional will, and your emotions. It will save you. Get into it. Got all kinds of groups here. You know what's, what's so strange about this church is this church was basically a bunch of groups that all of a sudden said, hey, why don't we get together on Sunday? That'd be fun, rather than the inverse. So we already got all kinds of networking and groups. You say, I don't know my Bible. It's too challenging to read. Well, first of all, you can read your Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, and he will. That's number one. Number two, there are plenty of groups. I, we marvel all the time. And I look out over this place. There's so many people in here that could lead Bible studies. We've got more of a solid foundation with maturity. There are people in here that could... Do, they will blow your mind. I don't know if she's here this morning, but Marilyn Meberg started part, part of this church. I was just talking to somebody about her the other day. She's, she said, this is my church home. She was one of the speakers for women of faith. They packed stadiums with thousands, tens of thousands of women. She comes here. Why don't you take her to breakfast? 
Marilyn, are you even here? I don't even know if she's here. But you know, there, there she is, Marilyn. Stand up, Marilyn. Stand up. Right there. Come on, I'm going to shame her. Now turn around. You know what you should do, women? You say, oh, I don't know that. You hunt her down and buy her breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever, and say, just help me read the Bible. I guarantee you she would. One at a time. <laughs> buy her breakfast. Let me tell you something. Has God said? It's not just Maryland. I, I mean, I look around here. Many these women, Bible study fellowship leaders, group leaders. It's just there's there's so many of them. It just boggles my mind. What's the Lord going to do with these people? They want to be utilized because they're living out the stewardship of their life as well. Number two, Genesis three verse four. Let's read Genesis three verse four. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, what Satan does here is he challenges the very integrity of God. Somehow God is a bad, bad actor. And he lives up in heaven and he's a killjoy and he wants to steal the true you. You know, this is just the way I am. This is my identity. This is my whatever. And God wants to suppress that and he wants to rip that from me and make me part of some boring old religious group where I'm always beating myself up and never really living life. And he challenges over and over the integrity of your creator as if God doesn't know how you function the best. He created you. He saw you in the unformed substance of the earth. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He has plans for you. He knows how you function and how you don't function well. Therefore, to prove to you, he came on and took on human flesh and entered the stream of fallen humanity to show you how it looks. That's Jesus. And then to follow that act up as if that wasn't extraordinary enough, he sent the power of the third person of the Trinity in the Holy Spirit to invade your body and guide you into all truth so that you can begin to live more like Jesus. That's the integrity of our God. That's the integrity. And finally, and this is what Satan loves to do the most, he loves to challenge your now willingness to subject and submit to his kingdom and saying, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. God's holding out. You can't live under that kind of scrutiny. You can't live under that kind of kingdom because all the kingdom of God is is where the rule and the reign of God is manifest. That can happen already. It's, it won't be fully realized until we get to heaven, but it can be understood now. Are you with me? If you live under the rule and the reign of God, yeah, there's going to be boot camp and there's going to be challenges. And there's going to be all of that. But I'll tell you this you will begin to have life spring up in you. You'll begin to have, and then what? And then Potter comes on the scene and begins to try to divert you and begins to try to whisper in your ear that little, that little tempting voice. You're better than this. You know, you've been coming to Church of the Red Door the last uh, year and uh, nobody knows who you are and you're not being recognized and you're not being seen and you're worth a lot more than that. Why don't you just go back out? You don't need organized religion anyway and 
And let me tell you something. If he sends you to another church, by all means, because there's some wonderful churches here in the valley. But what I'm saying is he wants to pull you off and isolate you and get you alone, get you into your little world so that he can pick you off. See, Potter's, Potter's desire really was not to advance George Bailey's life. Potter's desire was to destroy the savings and loan. See, Satan's ultimate desire, he wants to kill and steal and destroy as many as he can. He wants to diminish God's kingdom. And he'll do anything he can. He'll flatter you. He'll manipulate you. And he'll always call into question the word, God's integrity, and your willingness to submit. Verse 5, God knows that in the day that you eat from it, listen to Satan's words, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. God's holding out on you. You don't know how good it is on the other side of this little religious world you live in, this little little paradigm of, you know, fanciful, mythological thinking about a future realm. If you just, you only have one life, go ahead and live it. And and remember what we looked at too. And and this is a whole other sermon, but that's the same thing they did in Egypt. Satan, Pharaoh, he said, you can leave, he said, I tell you what, You can go and sacrifice to the Lord your God, only don't go very far away. And then then you can go on out a little bit more. And he had three different areas. And finally, Moses turns around and says, let me tell you something, not a hoof. We're not leaving a hoof behind. We're taking all of our people and all of our stuff and everything we are and everything we own. And and we are leaving Egypt completely. But all the way along, Satan doesn't mind. Just, okay, you can go to church a little bit, but you don't want to go, you want to become a Bible thumper. You know, you don't become those crazies. You don't, want to, you don't want to overdo this. Just stay here. And you need to turn around to Satan when you hear that temptation, that final temptation. You need to turn around and say, not a hoof. We're not leaving a hoof behind. As for me and my household, all of us, we're going to the other side. We're going through our baptism. And yeah, I realize we go into the wilderness and it gets dry and dusty. And, uh, and all of a sudden we feel like we're losing everything. We feel like God, God but trust me, stay, let him stay at the helm. You will not regret it. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Guard your heart, for out of it flow the very springs of life. See, Satan comes after your heart through the deceitfulness of sin. It's deceit. It's, a, it's just a mirage. And he tempts you. And that's the way he typically tempts you. If you're in the middle of that right now, well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I you know, uh, well, you know, this, I, I like this, but this is, well, yeah, I'll skip that. I, I don't like that either. <laughs> this, now, this I like. But, but that. I don't like that. See, this is all for us. We're going to end here because I I think that this could be a significant moment in your life right now. You need to understand how Satan operates. The Bible's clear. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. And he's doing the same thing he's always done. Power, sex, security, money. This is the same things that the flesh craves. Is it, is it wrong to have money? Of course not. As long as you recognize it's God's money. Is it wrong to have sex? Absolutely not. Within the confines of marriage and a monogamous relationship that reproduces 
children and is gracious and loving and caring and nurturing and intimate. Fantastic. God came up with the idea. Beautiful. Power. Nothing wrong with power at all. As long as you recognize that it is the power of God that's in, puts you in a particular position or given you platform and you utilize it to make him famous and not yourself. See, all these are little twists, just little tiny turns. But that little bit of arsenic changes everything. So this morning, maybe you're in a place. Maybe you're in a place where you say, you know, I've been hearing those voices lately. Or I've acted on those voices. And it's gotten me off my path five years ago. I was on a path, but now I realize I have been spinning my wheels for five years. I've been unfruitful. It's been a misery to me. Maybe you invited Jesus into your life years ago. And then somehow, some way, you just listen to the, you listen to the potter, serpent. It's all the same. It comes in different forms. Well, you know what you can do is you can backtrack now. You can go back down that wrong path. And it says you can repent. First John 1, 9. Confess your sin to the Lord. And he's faithful to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all your nonsense. Thank God. But don't keep down that path. You're always going to be miserable. Come on back to the Father. His arms are open wide and he will kill the fattened lamb for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, your word. Father, let us not ever question your word. Your integrity, Lord, you're the integrity. You're beyond integrity. You are love and power and kind and merciful. You're everything bound into one. Lord, you are the creator of all things. And Lord, you love your creation even when we fail. Forgive us, Father, for calling into question your integrity. And Lord, forgive us also for listening to the voice that says, you know what, you can't live under subjection to God. God's holding out on you. You've got to live this life. Father, forgive us for not believing that your life is the best life and the only life. It's the only life. Father, forgive us for that. So, Lord, we come to you this morning as a church. Lord, we want to be bound as a repentant church, as a worshiping church, as a word church. And so, Father, I'm just praying if there's people out there now, Lord, they would take the time to come down and right down here to front or maybe even in the back in prayer. And, Lord, if you need some, and if, I'll just tell you right now, if you need somebody to pray with, we'll have some people down here to pray for you, down to my lower right, your lower left. Or you can just tell the Lord, just tell him, Lord, I, I, I ask you to forgive me. I listened to the temptation of the, of the, of the one that was the, the star, and yet he fell, the fallen star. Lord, I listened to that little whisper, and it's cost me a few years or months. It's cost me a relationship. Father, will you forgive me? And he will. I promise you, the blood is always ready for those who would ask forgiveness. So, Lord, we come before you today. We ask you to forgive us as a church as we sin. And, Father, we worship you and we thank you for your gracious love. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen.